Terakoto te faro Aotearoa Unitarians. Terakoto na manahiri, no mai, higher mai, ki tere hui topa a te atoa, terakoto te tato katoa. Welcome back, or for the first time, to our worship online. A form that was inconceivable to me when ordained nearly 40 years ago. But I sometimes ask myself, what is gained and what is lost by this new form? Has anything really changed? As a worship leader, I have to wonder if Zoom has simply stabilized our community and its members during an anxious time or freed us to evolve into what the world needs now. I am haunted by this thought that the safest place for ships is in the harbor, but that's not why ships were built and neither is a faith community. This morning I'd like for us to consider unfurling our sails, or at the very least, what keeps us from doing so. Now, if you have a candle or a chalice, let's light it. Every endeavor begins with a first step and encounters darkness and difficulty along the way. We know the darkness of ignorance, of fear, and of tyranny. Yet we know the dawning of the light, the beginnings of hope, and the renewal of life. Blessed be that eternal power which gives us the courage to kindle this light. I never can find the right place to show this. This morning, I want to really dig down and look at the issue of leadership and, you know, who is it that's going to tell us to unfurl our sails and leave the harbor? Um, and I looked at a lot of issues around that. And it's a big topic, but I thought it was worthy of our time because, see, we as a community are leaders. Many of us as individuals within the community are leaders. Uh, those of you who are teachers or medical professionals or trade unionists or, uh, you know, are all leaders. Parents, sometimes grandparents, are leaders. And then there's our poor prime minister, and what she goes through as a leader. And uh, so it seemed like a worthy thing for us to consider. And so for our reading, I'm, I want to read you something called The Bridge. It's a fable. 
Now, it's a fable about how we sabotage leaders. And it's by a, a, a man named Edwin Friedman. He was a rabbi, family therapist, and a leadership mentor who worked at the highest levels of government or consulted with large groups. He tried to uh, end uh, segregation voluntarily instead of just legally and made great inroads. But more importantly, he probably saved my ministry. As a young priest, I read his first book, Generation to Generation. And that book has guided my ministry um, since 1987, when I read the book. It's full of wisdom. And uh, after he wrote that book, he wrote another book called Friedman's Fables. And this is the first of a number of fables in the book. There was a man who had given much thought to what he wanted from life. He had experienced many moods and trials. He had experimented with different ways of living. He had had his share of both success and failure. At last, he began to see clearly where he wanted to go. Diligently, he searched for the right opportunity. Sometimes he came close, only to be pushed away. Often, he applied all his strength and imagination, only to find the path hopelessly blocked. And then, at last, it came. But the opportunity would not wait. It would be made available only for a short time. If it were seen that he was not committed, the opportunity would not come again. Eager to arrive, he started on his journey. With each step, he wanted to move faster. With each thought about his goal, his heart beat quicker. With each vision of what lay ahead, he found renewed vigor. Strength that he had left, that had left him since his early youth returned and desires, all kinds of desires, reawakened from their long dormant positions. Hurrying along, he came upon a bridge that crossed through the middle of a town. It had been built high above a river in order to protect it from the floods of spring. He started across, then he noticed someone coming from the opposite direction. As they moved closer, it seemed as though the other were coming to greet him. He could see clearly, however, that he did not know this other, who was dressed similarly except for something tied around his waist. When they were within hailing distance, he could see that what the other had about his waist was a rope. It was wrapped around him many times and probably, if extended, would reach a length of 30 feet. The other began to uncurl the rope, and just as they were coming close, the stranger said, 
Pardon me, would you be so kind as to hold this end a moment? Surprised by this politely phrased but curious request, he agreed without a thought, reached out and took it. Thank you, said the other, who then added, two hands now and remember, hold tight. Whereupon the other jumped off the bridge. Quickly, the free-falling body hurtled the distance of the rope's length and from the bridge, the man abruptly felt the pull. Instinctively, he held tight and was almost dragged over the side. He managed to brace himself against the edge, however, and after having caught his breath, looked down at the other, dangling close to oblivion. What are you trying to do, he yelled. Just hold tight, said the other. This is ridiculous, the man thought, and began trying to haul the other in. He could not get the leverage, however. It was as though the weight of the other person and the length of the rope had been carefully calculated in advance so that together they created a counterweight just beyond his strength to bring the other back to safety. Why did you do this? The man called out. Remember, said the other, if you let go, I will be lost. But I cannot pull you up, the man cried. I am your responsibility, said the other. Well, I didn't ask for it, the man said. If you let go, I'm lost, repeated the other. He began to look around for help, but there was no one. How long would he have to wait? Why did this happen? This happened to befall him now, just as he was on the verge of true success. He examined the side, searching for a place to tie the rope. Some protrusion, perhaps, or maybe a hole in the boards, but the railing was universal, unusually uniform in shape. There were no spaces between the boards. There was no way to get rid of this newfound burden, even temporarily. What do you want, he asked the other hanging below. Just your help, the other answered. How can I help? I cannot pull you in, and there is no place to tie the rope so that you can go and find so that I can go and find someone to help me help you. I know that. Just hang on. That that will be enough. Tie the rope around your waist. It will be easier. Fearing that his arms could not hold out much longer, he tied the rope around his waist. Why did you do this? he asked. Don't you see what you have done? What possible purpose could you have had in mind? Just remember, said the other, my life is in your hands. What should he do? If I let go all my life, I will know that I let this other die. If I stay, I risk losing my momentum toward my long sought after salvation. Either way, this will haunt me forever. With ironic humor, he thought to die himself instantly to jump off the bridge while still holding on. That would teach this fool. But he wanted to live and to live life fully. What a choice I have to make. How shall I ever decide? As time went by, still no one came. The critical moment of decision was drawing near. To show his commitment to his own goals, he would have to continue on his journey now. It was already almost too late to arrive in time, but 
what a terrible choice to have to make. A new thought occurred to him. Well, he could not pull this other up solely up by his own efforts. If the other would shorten the rope from his end by curling it around his waist again and again, together they could do it. Actually, the other could do it by himself, so long as he, standing on the bridge, kept still and steady. Now listen, he shouted out, I think I know how to save you, and he explained his plan. But the other wasn't interested. You mean you won't help? But I told you I cannot pull you up myself, and I don't think I can hang on much longer either. You must try. The other shouted back in tears, if you fail, I die. The point of decision arrived, what should he do? My life or this other's? And then a new idea, a revelation, so new, in fact, it seemed heretical, so alien, it was, so alien was it to his traditional way of thinking. I want you to listen carefully, he said, because I mean what I'm about to say. I will not accept the position of choice for your life, only for my own. The position of choice for your own life, I hereby give back to you. What do you mean, the other asked, afraid. I mean, simply, it's up to you. You decide which way this ends. I will become the counterweight. You do the pulling and bring yourself up. I'll even tug a little from here. He began unwinding the rope from around his waist and braced himself anew against the side. You cannot be what you say, the other shrieked. You would not be so selfish. I am your responsibility. What could be so important that you would let someone die? Do not do this to me. He waited a moment. There was no change in the tension of the rope. I accept your choice, he said. At last and freed his hands. What I loved about this book is that the epilogue wasn't your usual kind of thing. The uh, Friedman had his characters attend a cast party from all the different fables. And all the different characters were chatting with each other at the party. I'll give you a brief portion of that. Baby bird, what's happening? Little John, the publisher's throwing a party. Tiger, whose idea was that? Lamb, I'll give you one guess. Bacterium, I think he really understands. Think he, bacterium, think he really understands us? Virus, do you? Caterpillar, well, I understand your story. It's mine. I can't figure out. Domino, that's the way we all feel. Everyone understands everyone else's, but not their own. Adam, you think he did it this way on purpose? Man on the bridge. I don't know about that, but I do know I've had enough rope burn. Dangling man, maybe we're all accidents. Man on the bridge. By the way, what did you do after you hit the water? Dangling man. At first, I said to myself, I guess you win some and lose some. Then I swam to shore, got another rope, and went back to wait for the next passerby.
My musings today, I've entitled Failure, Failure of Nerve. The world is stuck. There's a lot of evidence. This premise is supported by recent events in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The once admired prime minister has been stripped of her beatification, not by anything she has done or failed to do, but by our anxiety displayed prominently on Parliament's lawn. The pandemic is still taking a toll, never mind to a much lesser degree thanks to her government's decision to put people's well-being ahead of the GMP. Russia has declared war in Ukraine and threatens the world with nuclear weapons. Certainly nothing Jacinda has done. Thanks to that war, petrol costs are skyrocketing. Again, not Jacinda's doing. Due to the pandemic interrupting supply lines, petrol costs, labor shortages due to illness, supporting vulnerable uh, people and businesses, inflation is the monster under the bed. Everyone thinks Jacinda should scare away. Out of our anxiety, we want certainty. The that desire gets expressed as a demand for a quick fix when no such thing exists. In five stages of Greek religion, Gilbert Murray suggests that after Socrates had disillusioned his society, Greek civilization was around the corner from the Renaissance. But, he said, they seemed to panic at the prospect. And instead, he wrote, the great thing to remember is that the mind of humankind cannot be enlightened permanently by merely teaching ourselves to reject some particular set of superstitions. There's an infinite supply of other superstitions always at hand. And the mind that desires such things, that is, the mind that has not trained itself to be the hard discipline of reason, reasonableness and honesty, will, as soon as its devils are cast out, proceed to fill itself with their relations. A failure of nerve affecting civilization today is when anxiety reaches thir certain thresholds. Reasonableness and honesty no longer defend against illusion. And even and then even the most learned ideas can begin to function as superstitions. In my short time on this planet, I've seen a lot of changes, technologically speaking. But time and again, I have watched our anxieties knock our leaders off their pedestals and do everything possible to sabotage their leadership by numerous devils. 
As a result, new possibilities are never discovered or even looked for. Well, let's take a much longer view to see how we can get past this predilection. The Nuremberg Chronicle of 1493 describes Europe as depressed. Published in one of medieval Germany's most important centers of learning and innovation, the, the Chronicle epitomizes its era. On the one hand, pioneering with the new innovative hardware of movable type, it faithfully reproduces engraved portraits of the major cities of Europe and the, and the Holy Land. On the other hand, it describes a civilization with little vision or hope, referring to what they call the calamity of our time. The publishers actually leave several pages blank so that readers can record the rest of the events until the end of the world. Contributing to the general malaise is a combination of political, social, economic, and theological downers. Late 15th century Europe, despite its glorious cathedrals, emerging artists, and developing network of universities, is a society living in the wake of the plagues, the breakdown of the feudal order, and the increasing inability of an often hypocritical and corrupt church's capacity to ring true. In addition, the Moorish encirclement has proved invulnerable to centuries of crusades and now severely limits Europe's access to the riches and delights of the Far East. There has not been a major scientific discovery for a thousand years, a thousand years. Then as if suddenly Europe is all agog, the depression lifts like a morning mist, novelty begins to shine everywhere, and the seeds of the Renaissance that have been germinating here and there for 200 years sprout vigorously. The imaginative gridlock that has largely beclouded Europe's inventiveness for more than a millennium dissolves forever. Over the next half century, more radical change occurs in every field of human endeavor than has ever happened before. So what happened? Someone decided to go a different direction. Columbus was the first. While Columbus's voyage would not have been possible without some of the accumulated learning that preceded him, European history after 1493 does not logically follow from all the knowledge or creative imagination that has been gathering in the previous three centuries. The quantum leap that occurs around 1500 is a direct result of a complete reorientation to reality initiated by Columbus' discoveries and the subsequent exploration of geography. 
The catalyst for those other imaginative breakthroughs is the nerve of the great navigators who lead the way. Europe's imaginative capacity is unleashed, not by the discovery of learning, as those with a vested interest in learning would have it, but by the discovery of the new world. The enormous awakening of European civilization's inventiveness is a direct result of the effect those new horizons have on an old world. Even as Columbus is returning from his fourth voyage in 1504, Michelangelo is sculpting his David, and Leonardo has just completed the Mona Lisa. Half a century later, by the time Drake has reached San Francisco Bay in 1570, Shakespeare, Cervantes, Rabelais, and El Greco are rising to the top. Opera has its beginnings. Kepler, Galileo, and Harvey are beginning to set the stage for the next hundred years, which Alfred North Whitehead calls the century of genius. All after a thousand years of almost complete darkness, illuminated almost solely by the great cathedrals. Columbus' voyage is a hinge of time. It swings open a door barely ajar, and for the next hundred years, after 1493, no significant cathedral, unless previously planned, is begun. The effect of America's discovery on the European imagination is as though God has been hiding a piece of land bigger than the known world since the, begin since the dawn of creation. The great lesson of this turnaround is that when any relationship system is imaginatively gridlocked, it cannot get free simply through more thinking about the problem. Conceptually stuck systems cannot become unstuck simply by trying harder. For a fundamental reorientation to occur, that spirit of adventure, which optimizes serendipity and which enables new perceptions beyond the control of our thinking processes must happen first. This is equally true regarding families, institutions, whole nations, and entire civilizations. But for that type of change to occur, the system in turn must produce leaders who can both take the first step and maintain the stamina to follow through in the face of predictable resistance and sabotage. Any renaissance, anywhere, whether in a marriage or a business, depends primarily not only on, a, on new data and techniques, but on the capacity of leaders to separate themselves from the surrounding emotional climate so that they can break through the barriers 
that are keeping everyone from going the other way. My hope is that Jacinda has the nerve to stay the course, free from the anxiety swirling around her. At university, I took a music appreciation class. One of the questions on the final exam was, what would have been the reactions of Vivaldi, Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven to Dave Brubeck's 1959 offbeat composition, Take Five, which revolutionized tempos and time signatures in the world of jazz. Would they have been mystified, aghast, or just said, wow, what I could have done with that freedom? One of the reasons my spiritual journey has brought me to Unitarianism is it offers my imagination freedom and the courage to go where religion has not traditionally gone before. Whenever it seems that I will succumb to a failure of nerve, it lifts me up, calling me to unfurl the sails, and leave safe harbor. For my, my closing words are by Edwin Friedman. On the third day of creation, just before all forms of life were about to multiply, the Holy One said to his creatures, I see that what some of you treasure most is survival while what others yearn for most is adventure. So I will give you each a choice. If what you want most is stability, then I will give you the power to regenerate any part you lose. But you must stay rooted where you grow. If, on the other hand, you prefer mobility, you also may have your wish, but you will be more at risk. For then I will not give you the ability to regain your previous form. Those that chose stability we call trees, and those that chose opportunity became animals. And let us now extinguish our chalice. If you brought one. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. Well, gang, it's time for you to go into small groups and discuss some of these thoughts. I offer you these, uh, this conversation starter. Let's see where it leads. Are you a tree or an animal? 
Do you seek stability or the possibilities of opportunity? By the way, there's not a wrong answer. 